Hey, How the Church Works listeners, this is producer Heather, and I have three quick announcements. First, we've been working on this podcast basically in isolation for over a year, and so we really wanted to do something to connect with you, our audience. So we're holding a live event and Q&A with Caleb, Nina, and myself. It's going to be on Instagram Live this coming Tuesday, November 9, 2021. It'll be from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. That's 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. We'd love for you to come hang out with us, and you can really ask us whatever you want about the podcast producing process, questions about the episode topics, our favorite Portland area restaurant. (laughs) Just follow us at How the Church Works on Instagram, and we'll see you then. Second, we're working on a future episode of this podcast about the Adventist education system, and we'd love for you to help us out with it. So if Adventist education has impacted you and you're willing to share with us and our listeners, we want to hear about it. So send us a recording of you that's 30 seconds to a minute long. You can send it to hello at howthechurchworks.com. And we're really excited to hear about your experiences, your stories, and they may even end up in this future episode. And last, if you like what we're doing with this podcast, please say something. We want to know how these episodes are impacting you, what's standing out to you, what's challenging you. And if you want more projects like this in the future, please let us know by emailing us at hello at howthechurchworks.com. That way we can show our boss and have more cool projects like this. All right, that's it. On to the show. Seventh-day Adventists Believe. There's this beige-colored book that you might have seen in the classroom at an Adventist school or on a dusty church library shelf. It's called Seventh-day Adventists Believe, and the subtitle is A Biblical Exposition of the 27 Fundamental Doctrines. It was published in 1988, although a second edition was published in 2005, after a 28th fundamental belief was added. You might think that the beliefs of something as big as the Seventh-day Adventist Church have never changed. But that's not exactly true. The early church pioneers believed in something called present truth. This drive for present truth is actually the thing that inspired many of them to leave their denominations and join the Millerite movement, and later formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church. For the early Adventists, present truth was about looking outside the status quo to find what God is trying to tell you. And this search for present truth is what brought us the fundamental beliefs. And that search isn't over. I'm Nina Volato. And I'm Caleb Isley. This is How the Church Works a deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care. In today's episode, we're talking about beliefs, what they are, how we got them, and how we keep searching for truth as Seventh-day Adventists. So the fundamental beliefs for us are not a creed. Not a creed. While working on this project, 
We've heard a lot of people say that. They just express how we understand the biblical truth from the scriptures themselves. And uh, if you wanted to know what does an Adventist believe on this or that, this is how we currently understand the biblical teaching on this or that subject. That's Dr. Frank Hosel. He's the Associate Director of the Biblical Research Institute in the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, which does in-depth research of theological questions facing the Adventist Church. We'll talk to him more later. In previous episodes, we talked about how early Adventists were strongly opposed to this idea of a creed, a formal statement of belief. Now, creeds are common in the Christian tradition. Think of maybe the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. But Adventists didn't want a creed. They had firm beliefs and doctrines, but they had witnessed other Christians clutching onto tradition, saying, this far and no farther, instead of what they believed was newly revealed scriptural truth. Millerites had also been ostracized for their beliefs about Jesus returning soon and calls to abolish slavery, which didn't sit well with other evangelicals who saw things differently. In fact, up to the 1920s, Seventh-day Adventists were even considered by some to be progressive compared to other denominations, especially evangelicals. So if we were so anti-creedal, how did we get a list of fundamental beliefs, which some say are a creed or litmus test? And what is their purpose? To understand that, we needed to talk with Dr. Joseph Kidder, professor of pastoral theology and discipleship at the Adventist Theological Seminary in Berrien Springs, Michigan. I originally come from Nineveh, so I have the distinct honor of saying I am the product of Jonah. Uh, Jonah came to my hometown 2,700 years ago, and some people got converted, and here I am today. Dr. Kidder has extensive knowledge on the history of the Seventh-day Adventist fundamental beliefs. Although the fundamental beliefs were not formally adopted until 1980, they didn't just appear out of thin air. They've existed there in one form or another since the beginning of the church. Dr. Kidder helped us trace back that history. The pioneers of the Adventist church had a very distinct experience with the creeds. If you're keeping a tally on this episode, this is the second time someone has mentioned that Adventists don't like creeds. They felt they were disfellowship from other churches because of creeds. Creeds, it depends on how you define the word. For some people, like the Catholic Church, it's a set of doctrines that is unchangeable, like the Nicene Creed, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes Protestant churches might use the word the creed in general to mean like statement of belief, like what we use it. The main difference, at least according to our pioneers, is that creeds are unchangeable. Creeds stifle the study of God's word. Creeds sometimes can be the measure by which the Bible can be judged. It's almost like the Bible has to go with the creed rather than the creeds go with the Bible. So based on all of this, 
they felt very, very uncomfortable with creeds. You can see how using a statement of beliefs to interpret the Bible could be problematic and rather circular. How could you discover something new about what you believe if everything had to be measured against an already existing litmus test? The early Adventists wanted their beliefs to be malleable, adaptable to new truth discovered through seeking God and studying the Bible. As we learned in our last episode, this desire for a a more grassroots approach wasn't only limited to the beliefs of the Adventists. And also uh, kind of related to this, they were very uncomfortable with church organization. Part of the reason they were very uncomfortable with church organization was why would you need organization if Jesus is coming very soon? The other reason why uh, they felt like their role, at least initially at the beginning, was to bring revival to the other churches. In fact, early Adventists had some pretty strong words for their Christian brethren who did have creeds and organization. Here's a letter from J.N. Loughborough, an early Adventist minister and pioneer. We call the churches Babylon, not because they covenant together to obey God, but the first step in apostasy is to set up a creed, telling us what we shall believe. The second is to make that creed a test of fellowship. The third is to try members by that creed. The fourth is to denounce as heretics those who do not believe in that creed. And fifth, to commence persecution against such. So now you could see why they felt very uncomfortable with creeds. It was used against them. At least that's the way they felt. Adventism's defiance against creeds and penchant for grassroots momentum made it a bit of a renegade. But eventually, this caught up with them. However, over the years, there was a need, and the need was to express to other people what they believe. Second, to combat the arguments against them that they believed in weird things. There were a lot of questions from the larger Christian community about who these Adventists were and what they believed, because these Adventists had some doctrines that were pretty distinct. So at the beginning, they had about five major doctrines they kept talking about over and over, and that is the the Sabbath. In fact, James White, in one place, he said the Sabbath is a mighty platform in which we stand on. That's what unify all of us. Again, uh, also he said the, the law of God, whether it is in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is still binding today. The state of the dead, that when people die, they are in the grave waiting for Jesus to come. The next two doctrines were uh, the second coming of Christ and glory, the visible one, and then the restoration of everything. Okay, we have Sabbath, the law of God in both Old and New Testaments, the state of the dead, second coming of Christ, and restoration. These doctrines appeared in the Adventist writings from the beginning. But today, we have 28 fundamental beliefs. How did we get those? 1872 was the first time we have a set of fundamental beliefs that dealt with more than the five I just mentioned. This first list was written by Uriah Smith, 
a, a real firecracker of an early Adventist and a man who worked for over 50 years as the editor of the flagship Adventist publication, The Review and Herald, which is now called The Adventist Review. The second major event in history was 1931, uh, Wilcox. That's F.M. Wilcox. Who was the editor of the review, came up with a kind of a different set of fundamental beliefs. Something we should note here is that Wilcox actually began working on this list in 1919. On May 25, 1919, Wilcox and other Adventist leaders were a few of nearly 6,000 attendees of the week-long World Christian Fundamentalist Association in Philadelphia. This conference is often referred to as the birth of the fundamentalist movement, quote, placing the planks in a platform on which the fundamentalist movement would stand for years to come. As existential dread from a worldwide war and increased uncertainty about the effect of the theory of evolution on Christian theology, fundamentalists called for a return to certainty, clear morals, biblical literalism, and creeds. But it wasn't quite a return. It was a religion reformed for a new age. After attending this conference, Wilcox felt inspired. He felt that Adventists needed to be specific about what they believed, too. So he drafted up a document to be published in the December 1919 issue of the Review and Herald, where he was serving as editor. In 1931, Wilcox and a team of other Adventist leaders re-evaluated the statement, tweaked it, and published it in the Adventist yearbook, making it more official. And then in 1980, and that is the general conference in Dallas where they came up with the one that is very similar to what we have today. 1980 is also very important because at that time they affirm that no revision to the fundamental belief can happen by one man or one committee. It has to be done by the general conference. In 1872, we have one person writing them. Wilcox in... Uh, 1931 was a committee of four, the people who worked with him at the review. But in 1980, it was the whole general conference voting on it. What Dr. Kidder is referring to here is the general conference in session, which we talked about in our last episode on structure. This is an event that happens once every five years, or in the case of, say, a pandemic, six or seven years, and includes delegates from every Adventist territory in the world. The delegates vote on important church matters, including any changes to the fundamental beliefs. But this is different from the General Conference headquarters, which is the administrative institution of the World Church. There's something else you need to know about how these beliefs were developed. Their purpose has changed. The language used in the 1872 list that Uriah Smith wrote was combative and somewhat reactionary against what other religious institutions believed. When the next list came out in 1931, it was more apologetic, which refers to Christian apologetics, which is another word for the defense of Christian beliefs. But Dr. Kidder tells us that by 1980, the fundamental beliefs became descriptive in nature. This is exactly what we believe. And there's another thing about 1980, it became more systematic. The previous one were just 
random thoughts put together. Some people might dispute that, but at least that's the way it appears to be. But definitely in 1980, it became very, very systematic. And it flows from one to the next, flows from God to the church, to Christian living, to the last day events and the restoration of everything. In other words, especially when the 27, now 28, fundamental beliefs as we know them today were adopted in 1980, the purpose of them was not to be prescriptive, as in, you must believe this or you're not an Adventist. Instead, it was intended to be descriptive, as in, this is a survey of what Adventists generally believe. The Adventist church is open to different interpretation. In order to really be true to the spirit of the Adventist church, we cannot say this is the final word. We cannot say that you have to believe every jot and tittle of this. But this is kind of what we believe at this moment to the best of our ability, to the best of our interpretation. But if God revealed to us something different, we will change. One of the clearest examples of this is that the early Adventists did not believe the widely held Christian doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, despite William Miller teaching Trinitarianism. In fact, James White, husband to Ellen White, and one of the most prominent founders of the Adventist Church, died in 1881 with an anti-Trinitarian stance, But today, belief in the Trinity is listed as the second Seventh-day Adventist fundamental belief. After the 1888 General Conference session, a new era of the Adventist church began, one that emphasized Jesus and the plan of salvation over just the law and right behaviors. Where early Adventists had widely believed that Jesus was a created being, Adventists began to explore Jesus' role in Scripture and salvation. And by 1899, Adventist teaching on the subject sounded strikingly Trinitarian. In the book Desire of Ages, published in 1898, Ellen White referred to Jesus as the, quote, third person of the Godhead. And thus, Adventist beliefs on this topic had shifted. So between 1872 and 2005, we've added 23 beliefs, for a total of 28 that we have today. So what are these beliefs? They can be divided into a few main categories. Doctrines about God include beliefs about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Humanity includes beliefs about creation and the nature of humanity. That humans are made in the image of God, have been fractured by sin, and need a perfect Savior to reconcile us. Salvation covers the Adventist belief in a cosmic battle between good and evil that can be traced all throughout history, often referred to as the Great Controversy. It also refers to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the experience of salvation, and growing in Christ. Church includes doctrines about the church, the remnant, and its mission unity in the body of Christ, the Lord's Supper, also known as communion, spiritual gifts and ministries, and the gift of prophecy, also referred to as the spirit of prophecy. Living 
includes beliefs about how to live our lives as Christians. The Sabbath, the law of God or the Ten Commandments, stewardship, marriage and family, and Christian behavior. The final category is restoration, which includes some of the most distinct Adventist beliefs, including Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, also known as the sanctuary, or the investigative judgment, the second coming of Christ, the death and resurrection, the millennium and the end of sin, and the new earth. That leaves us with the final fundamental belief, which all of the other beliefs are based upon. The Holy Scriptures. If all of that feels complicated to you, that's okay. Some of these beliefs are shared with other Christian denominations, like the Trinity, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the nature of humanity. But others are somewhat unique to Adventism, like the five S's which are slightly different than the original five pillars Dr. Kidder spoke about. The five S's are Sabbath, Sanctuary, Second Coming, State of the Dead, which is found under the death and resurrection belief, and Spirit of Prophecy. These beliefs have a rich history and theological framework, and you can read more about them at the Adventist.org website. Most of you will quickly recognize some of these beliefs as universal Christian truths, and others that are uniquely Adventist. Why do we need to state some of the more obvious beliefs? Here's Dr. Hazel again, who we spoke with at the beginning of this episode. Well, we'd like to emphasize some things that set us apart, and rightly so, but there are many more things that unite us with other Christians, and we need to be um, knowledgeable about those as well. So before you talk about differences, know the things that unite you with your partner in conversation. Having said that, why do we hold a few things in common? Uh, not in common, but uh, that, that are distinctly uh, Adventist. I think the reason for that is simply because we have taken the Word of God seriously. And we have started to apply that to the best of our knowledge to every belief that we hold, and we've tested that with what Scripture has to say about that. And so for that reason, we've started to keep the Sabbath rather than another day of worship. And for that reason, we have come to the, to the realization that Jesus is alive, and he ministers for us in the heavenly sanctuary, and he will come back again as he has promised. And we take that serious, and in other churches, that has become a somewhat neglected area. So these things of the Sabbath, of even creation, and of the sanctuary, and of uh, the state of the dead, it's not uniquely Adventist, but not very many other Christians share that belief with us. But it makes a huge difference in our understanding of the nature of God. Is God a God who would punish the sins for eternity with an everlasting, unquenchable fire? If you believe that, what you really say is that the problem of evil and the problem of sin is never, ever fully solved because they will be there in hell eternally. I have made sin immortal. 
So how did they come about? Well, they came about because people took the Bible seriously. They sat there, we had Bible conferences, and they studied the Word. And they came from different church traditions, you know, and it took a while. But finally, you know, we came to the point, we said that this is what we Adventists believe and hold for true. This is what is uniquely Adventist, and I think that's what we've cherished and appreciated over the years and for which we can be grateful for as well. If you're an Adventist or grew up Adventist or know Adventists, you might be surprised by what is and isn't in this list of fundamental beliefs. Nope, haystacks aren't a fundamental belief. Neither is education. Despite the Seventh-day Adventist Church running the second largest Christian education system in North America, Or maybe there are a few things on this list that you don't quite understand or believe in. Does that mean you aren't an Adventist? We asked one of the top Adventist historians and theologians of today, George Knight, that question. We really got two questions there. What makes somebody a Christian and what makes somebody an Adventist? And uh, the trouble is we too often focus on what makes us Adventists. You know, we got the 27, 28 fundamental beliefs. We don't eat pork. We do, you know, keep Sabbath. Adventism is a like a bead of strings, a string of beads. You've got, you've got all these doctrines. And then off the ends, you've got about 10,000 uh, little uh, beads that uh, come from Ellen White on this topic and that topic. Thou shalt not go to a movie. Well, that was my generation. Uh, you know, and you, and you got all these things, but there's no center. It's one thing to be an Adventist. It's another thing to be a Christian. The the central core of Adventism, of course, is um, what we've always referred to as the pillar doctrines, the second coming, the sanctuary, that Christ has a heavenly ministry, the Sabbath, and uh, all of these wrapped up in a package called the three angels' messages. Uh, I said there's about... uh, Five things that make us Christians, and I listed them. There's about five things that make us Adventists, and some administrator out there from somewhere stood up and said, how do you get 27 out of that? I said, well, maybe we're in the business of trying to um, develop more fundamental beliefs. My greatest fear is not that we have 27, that the next generation might have 54, and after that we might have 108 as Adventism gets narrower and narrower and we get defined as somebody's theology. Adventism ought to be a living movement, not something with rigor mortis. Let's go back to the haystack thing. For those listening, haystacks are a common potluck dish that some equate to a taco salad. Adventists have to make a distinction for whatever reason that this is not a taco salad. It's a haystack. Now, Everyone has a different order on how they layer their haystacks, and different subcultures will have different elements. I'm coming back to this because we have to make a distinction between culture and beliefs. I know it sounds silly to compare our beliefs to haystacks, but the lines can easily blur when it comes to other issues. The fundamental beliefs that we have in the church, uh, 28 fundamental beliefs, they are not the maximum of what Adventists believe. They are, I would say, the minimum. If you want to be an Adventist, that is the minimum. Beyond that, 
there is plenty of room for individual aspects of how you want to practice your Adventist faith. You know, whether you want to, to live strictly vegetarian or even vegan is not a matter of a fundamental belief, but it's part of our Adventist culture and, uh, and background. And for some people, it becomes almost as important as a fundamental belief. So there is a lot of growth and opportunity to be active in different ways beyond what we officially as a church hold and believe. Um, you know, there are, there are many individual interpretations of this Bible passage or that Bible passage, but that's not the official teaching of the church necessarily. Two possible examples, in-gathering. In-gathering is an Adventist tradition you maybe haven't heard of. Every year around Christmas time, some churches go door-to-door, raising money for mission work around the world. If your parents or grandparents grew up Adventist, you can ask them about in-gathering, and they'll probably know what you're talking about. It was popular in decades past, but isn't practiced as much in North America anymore. In-gathering would be uh, an Adventist practice at least in some parts of the church, that is very well established, that is not part of our fundamental belief. Potluck, haystacks, I would say, are typical Adventist things. Every Adventist, no matter where you go, knows you know, what a potluck is. You know. It has become uh, an Adventist tradition, if you please. You know, It's not a bad tradition, but it's, it's something that is not regulated in in the fundamental beliefs. You know, even the work of ADRA is not regulated in the fundamental beliefs and, and, and other things. And the offerings that we have in the church <laughs> are not regulated in the fundamental beliefs. Uh, they, are, they are just grown out of the attempt to support certain ministries and, and things. Now, not to throw a wrench into this whole research project, but it's important to mention that the church also has guidelines and statements on certain issues. Some of us take those two approaches and equate them to our fundamental beliefs, but that's not their intended purpose. Fundamental beliefs are completely theological statements that have been carefully vetted uh, throughout the world church. In my 40 years of ministry, only one has been added. This is Ken Denslow. He's currently serving as the president of the Lake Union Conference after serving as the assistant to the president of the North American Division for 10 years. And he was the very first person we interviewed for this podcast, way back in late February 2020. Statement or a guideline uh, is not voted on. It can be voted on at a GC session, but it doesn't have to be voted on. It can be done at annual council, I think even at spring meetings. And they tend to deal with the application of theology to society. For instance, we have statements on on uh, weapons, on, on the uh, bearing of arms, and, and we have statements on abortion. Guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. Uh, they don't have any weight of church discipline uh, behind them. Uh, and they are more about application than the uh, 18, I mean, the 28 fundamental beliefs. I was almost let it off that I only agree with 18 of them, didn't I? 
That's a joke. It's a joke, <laughs> folks. <laughs> it's a joke, but it, it opens up for a really interesting question, and that is, you know, do I do I support all the twenty eight? Well, it doesn't have to be you personally. It's just you know how many. Does somebody have to completely accept our exact stance on all 28 to to be a Seventh-day Adventist? That is a big question, but an extremely important one. We've briefly shared about how varied Adventist experiences and cultures are in our church. But at the end of the day, we are all still Adventists. For many of us, we consider ourselves Adventists without even being able to recite all 28 fundamental beliefs. Other Adventists may fully know and understand the fundamental beliefs, but just don't agree with all 28 of them. Does that still make them Adventist? It's interesting to look at the baptismal vows. The baptismal vows don't go go through the 28 fundamental beliefs, but they do give a nod and a wave to the 28 fundamental beliefs. I know of nowhere where there is interrogation taking place as to the absolute support of all 28 fundamental beliefs. I'm, I'm in accord with all 28 of them. I'm not in accord with everything that's been written about all 28 of them or how, how they have been, been applied in every place. But I'm, I'm in accord personally with all, all 28. I, I think they make good theological sense to me. Having said that, there are those who wish we had fewer. And in fact, we used to say all the time, our only creed is the Bible. No particular definition of how every verse of the Bible is to be understood, that there was, there was a sense of openness. I personally, um, I can live with a fair amount of ambiguity. I don't need to have everything nailed down for my faith to be at work. And where you draw the line, and at what point does a statement of beliefs a list of fundamental beliefs become a creed. Those, those are questions that people wrestle with. I think you get different answers in any group of people that you put in a room. They won't all understand the role of the 28 fundamental beliefs the same. Ken mentioned baptismal vows, and we want to spend a little time on this. If you have been baptized, you might have signed these vows. They are a statement of 13 tenets that reflect the person's understanding of baptism and membership into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There is also an alternative vow, voted on by the General Conference Session in 2005, with three statements, and both versions include statements about accepting the teachings of the Bible as expressed in the Statement of Fundamental Beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But in practice, things are a bit messier than that. Here's Dr. Kidder again. Our church had a baptism at the lake, and the baptismal candidate was a boy, maybe 12 years old, from a very prominent family in the church. They took the 13 list of the baptismal vows, so they read the remnant church. The little boy said, I have no clue what you are talking about. He asked him, will you support the church with your finances? He said, I can't even support myself. How do you expect me to support the church? He said, will you read your Bible every day? He said, I don't have time to read my 
books from school. How do you expect me to read the Bible? Now, this boy was very, very honest, but we baptized him anyway. And praise the Lord we did. In fact, if I was the pastor and he answered me, I would baptize him. But it shows you that sometimes we don't understand these things. And maybe the best way to deal with it is, like, how does this affect your life? How will this bring you closer to Christ? This is what I hope to see in the new generation of pastors, to go beyond 13 points of talking about that wonderful relationship we have with Jesus and how that color everything in your life. When you look at the baptismal vows, they're not exactly the same as the fundamental beliefs. Most of the distinctive beliefs of the church become incidental in the baptismal vows or become more a blanket statement of that. I personally believe that the individual should agree to a core set of beliefs, the core set of the Bible, Christ, you know, the second coming, uh, it goes back again to the original fundamental beliefs, the five or six, uh, the state of the dead, the Sabbath, the law of God. But the rest, I mean, even if you go to our churches today and ask them, a lot of our members will not be able to articulate the sanctuary or the investigative judgment or the remnant church. What I would love to see from the people I baptize, to know those core values but to encourage them constantly to study the Bible, to learn everything. I always taught everything, like the 28, I always taught them. But I knew that they don't understand all of them. They understand the major one. I mean, the Sabbath is a very easy one to understand. There is 1,100 texts in the Bible about it. Uh, we worship on the Sabbath. It's a good, in fact, even Andrews University and the survey they did, young people, they put a high value of the Sabbath at 93%. It's a day to rest without any guilt. That's the way some of them have framed it. Uh, but the rest, we need to encourage people to study. We need to help them to find the truth for themselves and to grow in that truth. I know some people will disagree with me. And I want to tell you, I love you, even if you disagree. I, th I think the reality is I don't want my members to say, well, I know the 28 fundamental beliefs and I'm done. That will be an opposition to the feeling and the worldview of our pioneers. One big question that we need to ask is, how do we form fundamental beliefs? Who decides what is or isn't a fundamental belief? We talked a little bit about that process through the general conference session, but Dr. Hosel really breaks it down for us here. The church, we have a mechanism where we, as a representative uh, church, where we have representatives from the world field come together to decide on fundamental issues of our beliefs. They are not set in concrete, as the preamble of the beliefs says. You know, they, they can be changed and improved and can become more, more specific as need arises. Actually, I'm quite proud of our church that everybody who wanted could make a suggestion, would be brought to appropriate committees, and they would discuss that. And if they saw that this is a legitimate concern, 
they would uh, advance that and bring that to the floor and the delegates at large could then come to the conclusion whether they wanted to adopt that and saw, saw it fit that this should represent what we believe for the global world church. Once we have voted on that globally, these things cannot be changed by an individual. They cannot be changed by the general conference president. You know, he's not the Pope. And we have to keep that into perspective because he doesn't have the, the power nor does he have the authority to do that. And I'm glad that he doesn't because we as a church work and function differently. And we have the community of believers who work together and we believe that the Holy Spirit can guide all of us to deeper understanding of biblical truth. And that's what we as a church try to practice, as imperfect as it is. And I'm not saying that that we succeed on every level perfectly, but at least that's the principle how we work. And so once these things are have become fundamental beliefs, they are not just a private personal opinion of an Adventist. They have become the official statement of the church on how we understand certain biblical teachings and doctrines. Now, beyond that, you can have a lot of personal opinions on this and on that. And here again, I think it is important that we listen to the community of faith and to the church at large and to those who have studied the issue before. And some of these issues perhaps are difficult and will remain difficult to understand. And we have to be gracious enough to acknowledge that and not become dogmatic on issues. And I think we have to discernment that we focus on those things that are clear in Scripture. And there are plenty of things clear in Scripture and not major on minor things that are more difficult to understand and uh, lend themselves to confuse the minds and bring disunity and schism into our ranks. There's always going to be discussion and debates, even heated ones, when it comes to beliefs. Beliefs are something so personal. It can be difficult to mandate convictions across the board. And mixing our beliefs with politics, organization, and structure can really make people disillusioned with the church. Stan Patterson, Professor Emeritus of Leadership at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary elaborates on these challenges. You know, I can see how we've made a circus out of debates and what have you, because for some reason, somewhere along the way, being right has become very, very important for Seventh-day Adventists. And so you, in order to be right, you have to have a body of truth that is carefully articulated. And so the 28 fundamental beliefs provide that. I don't think it's wrong, but I also think we can be lulled into false security that we, we've got the truth in our backpack. Because the, the possibility is as we come closer and closer to the end of time, we may not have all the truth there that we thought we had. And by God's grace, we need to be questioning all the time. We need to be thinking about, about what we believe and why we believe it and what is the practical consequence of believing that. Dr. Patterson wasn't the only person we talked to that felt this way. George Knight has something to say about where our focus ought to be when it comes to our thinking about the fundamental beliefs. Now we're starting to write stuff into our fundamental beliefs that are not even in the Bible. 
That's serious. Now, I have no problem with a six-day creation, but when you start saying six 24-hour days, you'll never find that in Scripture. It just becomes something more to argue about. And that's just a small illustration of stuff that we've started to enter into our fundamental beliefs, which means the Bible is no longer our only creed. Uh, Suddenly, we have more boxes added on to a very complex system. You have to have boundaries. You have to say, okay, this is what defines us who are on the inside as opposed to those on the outside. And for Adventism, that's partly doctrinal and partly lifestyle. And we have confused those two, too. As far as I'm concerned, there's three tiers. You might think of one of them as a hub or the top of a pyramid, and that is what it's all about. That's about Jesus Christ. That's about Scripture. That is salvation by grace. That's about the cross. That's what all gives it meaning. And below that is doctrine. Doctrine should help us understand Christianity better. Lifestyle ought to help me understand the theology better as well as know how to relate to God and other people better. The fundamental beliefs are a big part of Adventism. Whether we realize it or not, these beliefs are embedded in our culture. Growing up, for me, I couldn't recite the 28 fundamental beliefs, but I have seen the effects of them around me. It's hard to look at this list and not look at our personal experiences with the church and feel like the fundamental beliefs have become a litmus test for who's in and who's out. Dr. Hosel said that the 28 are the minimum of beliefs for who and what is considered Adventist, despite it not being a creed. But many people who consider themselves Adventists today may not embrace all of them, or maybe don't fully understand them enough to accept them. Dr. Kidder also shared with us that accepting the fundamental beliefs isn't actually a requirement for baptism into the Seventh-day Adventist church. This can be confusing because some Adventist churches do use a baptismal vow that says, accepting the teachings of the Bible as expressed in the statement of fundamental beliefs. And this brings up an important point. When it comes to the fundamental beliefs, is that we're still talking about them. We're still figuring out the role of our fundamental beliefs, but we're also still figuring out what those beliefs are. At pretty much every general conference session, there are at least a few tweaks being made to some beliefs because language needs to be updated or clarified. And that's the beauty of the fundamental beliefs and Adventism. We're always searching for that present truth, for how God is shaping our understanding of Him and how the world works. Everyone's belief journey is personal. And it's okay to have questions, doubts, or to disagree. The more we learn about how the church works, we see this as an integral part of the Adventist DNA. Conversation, dialogue, questions, and seeking answers as a community. So if you're in that boat, don't get discouraged. You're in good company. We talked earlier about how the Adventist belief in the Trinity changed over time, and that was a good thing. But not all of the changes in this church have been good. 
Next time, we're going to talk about something really important. How the Seventh-day Adventists went from being one of the most anti-slavery religious movements in the 19th century to one of the most racially segregated churches in the 20th century. Adventism goes from being a church that's abolitionist, very activist, it's against slavery. I mean, many of our pioneers were participants on the Underground Railroad. And we get to the point in the early 20th century by the early 1940s where we have to have separate black and white conferences. We have the black and white sections of the cafeteria at the general conference, most of our schools, black and white, right? So how do we go from being an abolitionist church to becoming basically a church that had embraced this racist ideology? Church Works is hosted by Nina Velado and Caleb Isley. Thank you to our guests this week, Frank Hosel, Joseph Kidder, George Knight, Ken Denslow, and Stan Patterson. You can find bonus content for this episode on our website, howthechurchworks.com. This episode was written by Nina Velado with help from me, Heather Moore. This episode was produced by Heather Moore. All episodes are edited and mixed by the multi-talented Nina Velado. Thank you to Michael Campbell for reviewing and fact-checking our episodes. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby, website and social media by Chelsea Ernina. Thank you to our tech and equipment expert, Stephen Husett. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Caleb Isley, and Nina Velado. Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. If you have something you'd like us to know, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at hello at howthechurchworks.com.